We continue the Shear in Navi, Hebrew history. We have finished the stories of the kings of the tribes of Yehuda, the two tribes. We go back now to pick up the chain of the stories of the ten tribes. The last king we had was Yoash, the king of the ten tribes. Yoash was the one who stood at the bedside of Elisha Hanavi as he passed away. He was nostalgic. Now, Yeravam, the son of Yoash, became king. He ruled for a long time, comparatively 41 years. Despite the fact that he was an evil king, evil means that he spread idol worship, he still lived a long time, reigned with success, and was even successful in battle too. He succeeded in his war against Aram, against Syria, in recapturing the city of Damascus, Damascus, returning it to the Jewish protectorate, became part of Israel, of course, for a very temporary period of time. But there was no long, drawn-out wars in the time of Yeravon. And again, despite his evil, he did succeed to reign for 41 years, which was an unusual number for the kings of the Ten Tribes. When he passed away, his son, Zechariah, the son of Yeravon, took over. And in contrast, he was king for only six months. Uh, he was killed by one named Shalom ben Yavesh. In fact, Shalom ben Yavesh killed him, assassinated him, not hiddenly, but in front of all the peoples, in front of all the Jews, openly to show his disdain for Zechariah. It is noteworthy, Gemara says, that Zechariah was the fourth one in line, great-grandson of Yehu. Remember, Yehu was the king to whom Hashem spoke, ordered him to wipe out the family of Achav. Yehu did so very courageously. And Hashem promised Yehu that he would have four generations of kings from his family. This was the last one of the four. And that's why he reigned for only six months' time. It could have been for a day, just to fulfill the promise of Hashem. It was kept to a period under one year, thereby the promise was completed, and that was the end of Yehu's descendants as far as ruling over the Jews. Shalom and Yavesh took over as king. The great assassin who succeeded in taking over the kingdom ruled for a period of one month, practically a record too. After one month's time, in turn, he was assassinated by Menachem ben Gadi. So that we see, as Hillel, the elder, says, if you will drown somebody, rest assured, someone else will rise up to drown you. Those who kill, who live by the sword, will ultimately die by the sword themselves. And so, Shalom and Yavesh got what he deserved. He killed, and in turn he was killed by Menachem and Gadi. Menachem and Gadi ruled for ten years' time, and he was not killed because his assassinating Shalom was one was a righteous act. Shalom deserved death. So he reigned for ten years' time, and during his time the king of Ashur came close to attacking the Jews. Ashur is known as Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria at that time, was a rising kingdom. They began to rise in power and stature and well, they were unknown previously, 
began to conquer little by little many of the countries, it began to be recognized as a leading empire. So when Asher came to attack the Jews, then Menachem ben Gadi bribed him to allow him to remain. He felt that he stood no chance in battle against Asher. He paid him a lot of money, a lot of gold from the royal treasury, and the king of Asher left him alone. At the end of 10 years' time when he passed away, his son, Pekachia, took over. He reigned for two years' time. At the end of the two years, he too was killed by his own chief officer, the army, his own general, Pekach ben Remalyo. These names are important if you want to know the history of the Jews. After all, if you study English history, that is non-Jewish history, you know the kings of the Middle Ages and so on, surely Lahavdil, you should have these names in mind too. These were actual kings of the Jews then. Of course, they were evil in succession. Pekach ben his chief officer, killed Pekachia in his palace and took over the kingdom, he ruled for a period of 20 years. He fought against Ochoz, the king of the tribes of Yehuda, and also, as is known, we mentioned previously in the last year, that Ochoz enlisted the aid of Tiglas Peleser, the king of Ashur, to help him against Pekach ben Mayahu. And so, the, he did not succeed in conquering the tribes of Yehuda, but Instead, he lost part of his own land. Now, in this battle, though, there was a partial battle with the tribe of Yehuda, and it was brought that he took captives as servants, slaves, 200,000 Jewish women in the tribe of Yehuda. He used them as slaves later on. This was a very important booty, important loot of battle. He was ready to place them into service, when the Navi Odeid came to him and advised him very strongly to return these women. They are not slaves, they are Jewish daughters, daughters of Israel, and it would bode very bad for himself if he kept them. This injected a fear into his heart, and he decided to follow the advice of the Navi, the prophet. He had these women return to their homes in Yehuda. Uh, he ruled for 20 years. Eventually, he was killed by Hoshea ben Elah. Hoshea ben Elah is very well known, perhaps more than most of the other kings. The simple reason that Hoshea ben Elah was the last one of the Jewish kings over the ten tribes of Israel. He ruled for nine years' time, and during his time, the king of Ashur, Shalmaneser, the king of Ashur, came, attacked the ten tribes, and took Hoshea ben Elah as prisoner. He had him put into a dungeon, kept him there in a prison, and he punished him this way because he had asked Hoshea ben Elah to surrender and to pay special taxes. Instead, Hoshea tried secretly to get the king of Egypt to help him in battle against Ashur, this was a joke to the king of Ashur. He wasn't afraid of Egypt. And so he captured Hoshea and kept him in this dungeon. Now this was, he was successful against the entire country of the ten tribes, but the capital city of the ten tribes was the city of Shomron. This city was very well fortified against an enemy, 
And so the king of Ashur laid siege to this city, a period of three years' time, until he finally captured this city. And this was the downfall, the final downfall of the ten tribes of Israel. The king of Ashur then drove the ten tribes out of the, their lands. He took them into exile and kept driving them from one city to the next, or one country to the next, because by nature a person leaves his own homeland, it slowly breaks down his spirit. This was the policy of Ashur. This is how this empire rose and grew and defeated every one of their enemies. Because if they conquered a country, they immediately had the people in that country transferred, switched from one country to the second, that no one actually lived on his own homeland. The ten tribes especially were taken out by the kingdom of Ashur, brought first to the lands of Ashur, and from there transported to a hidden place. This hidden place, to this day, is known as the place of the ten lost tribes. Where it is, there's a lot of discussion and controversy, even in the Gemara itself about this, but as is accepted in the Gemara, that it is somewhere in Africa, as we find in later chapters of the Gemara, somewhere in Africa, as much as we have had many expeditions by scientists, safaris, explorers, to explore this lost continent or this dark continent, dark day and night type of people that live there, <laughs> you can understand this continent has not been fully explored. There is a place in Africa that the Gemara says is, exists behind a wall that is impenetrable. It is these wall, this wall consists of a series of mountains. And these mountains are called in the Gemara Hare Choshech, the mountains of darkness, where no light penetrates at any time. Behind these mountains of darkness were driven to this day these ten tribes known as the Ten Lost Tribes. No matter how much a person may seek, he will not be able to find this place because it is the will of Hashem that they be left to remain in exile until Mashiach comes. There's only one case told in the Gemara about one person that succeeded in going behind those mountains and that was the Emperor Alexander the Great. It's a long, detailed, fascinating story which we will have soon in the Gemara classes. You must come in the Wednesday night classes to get that part of the story. Point is that the Torah now tells us two things. For one, we know that the ten tribes were lost, were driven out. What was the basic reason? Basically, the Torah itself asked the question, why are there ten lost tribes? If the reason is because they worshipped idols, because they turned away from faith in Hashem, then why aren't there twelve lost tribes? As we have had in history continually, the two tribes also turned to idol worship during a great long period of time. So why were only the ten tribes punished? The answer is that the punishment was deserved 
by the two tribes also, but when there exists a promise, a vow by Hashem, that vow will be fulfilled regardless of what may come, what the outcome may be, any situation that arises. This vow was to King David that always in the future it would be these tribes for King David and his descendants to rule over. And that is why the two tribes remained long past the time of the ten lost tribes. And even when they were sent into exile, their exile was only for a period of 70 years. They returned again to rebuild the second holy temple and then the subsequent story which we'll have later on. Meanwhile, these ten tribes had been warned continually. Note that the great prophets did not live among the two tribes. Eliyahu Navi and Elisha Navi lived with the kings of these ten tribes. They were with them constantly, warning them against idol worship, displaying, demonstrating miracle after miracle to bring faith to the Jews. As much as these warnings were given, they were of to no avail. And that's why the wording is that they were driven out because of the sins of Yeruvam ben Avot. Yeruvam was the first king of the ten tribes. That's when King Solomon's son took over the kingdom and the ten tribes seceded from the union. But Yeruvam took over as the first king and he led the Jews into idol worship. However, it is brought that afterwards the succeeding kings were even worse than Yeruvam. Despite this, the first one to start is the one that is blamed. The one that starts, the one that opens up the gate, the floodgates for evil, is the one that is blamed and that is held responsible for all future sins. This is called the sin of Yeruvam that brought about the downfall and exile of the ten tribes. To this day, they are lost. But the Torah assures us, same breath, that these ten tribes are still part of the twelve tribes of Israel. And let it be known, in the name of Hashem, that these ten tribes are not lost permanently. It is very temporary. Wherever they are now, they are living in perhaps better luxury a happier life than we of the two remaining tribes. They might be living in a dark continent, but surely it's less dark there than it is here in many respects. Now they are assured, when Mashiach comes, there will be kibbutz Goliaths. It is true that first, the Gemara says very clearly, when Mashiach comes, what's going to happen? What will Mashiach's first act be? first act will be to rebuild the holy temple. That's the first act before he even worries about gathering, collecting the Jews in the world. He'll build the, the holy temple, the third and final one, and then he'll bring all the Jews back to Israel with the temple completed. To bring all the Jews back means not just the Jews of America or Australia or throughout the world who are all part of the two tribes, but also included will be all those of the ten lost tribes. Then all twelve tribes will be united again, reunited forever afterwards.
For these ten tribes are lost, but only temporarily. They will come back when Mashiach comes. Nosazal now discusses this point, this issue, with a very interesting light, a very revealing thought. The question is, even today, today's lesson, we discussed in just a few minutes a large number of kings, one after the other. And can we imagine that these were Jews? Can we imagine that this is a behavior on the part of Jews? This would be expected of barbarians. One king rules. Shortly afterwards, there is an assassination. Who kills him? A Jew. A Jew kills whom? A Jewish king. Even if he's not religious, there is still a major mitzvah in the Torah. You must respect a father. Uh, even non-religious Jews do that. There's a more important mitzvah, you must respect a rabbi. Even those who are not religious still do not show disrespect. There's still more important mitzvah, you must respect a nasi. Nasi means the chief rabbi of all the Jews. And above all those, we have a mitzvah, you must show a greater respect yet to a king. A king of the Jews must be given an unusual degree of honor. How come that in this case we find that here are Jews turning against their kings and in rapid succession eliminating, wiping out one king after the other. We take the reign of these kings, kings of the ten tribes, we find that throughout, until the last king, Hosea ben Elah, there was an unusually large number of kings in a short span of time. Now, how could there be so much evil existing, prevalent among a people who are known to be the kindest of hearts in existence? No nation in the world at any time can ever compare to the goodness of heart, the purity, the compassion, the pity, the heartfelt feelings that one Jew has for another or for any fellow person, fellow human. And yet these people of heart, this outstanding nation, the children of Hashem, who are supposed to emulate Hashem, who are taught about respect for a fellow human being. Half of the Torah speaks about this. And the uppermost outstanding law is to love a fellow Jew or a fellow human as you would your own self. How could they have been filled with such malice and such barbarian type of conduct as to assassinate kings. Nosanzal answers this point and says to reveal a very interesting fact. As we know, there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. There are basically 600,000 Jews in the Am Yisrael, the Jewish nation. Basically means there are that many souls. Uh, when we have more than 600,000 Jews, it means that those souls, the major souls, are then divided into, broken up into smaller parts. So if you have 15 million Jews or 20 million Jews, they are still basically 600,000 components. But every one of these Jews has a letter in the Torah that corresponds to himself. Each Jew is a part of the Torah. In fact, it goes still further, the Gemara says, that each Jew is a Torah himself. The Torah itself consists of exactly 613 mitzvahs. 
613 commands. And these commands are divided into two types. The positive, which means the do's, do respect the parent, do observe the Shabbos, do eat kosher, do fast on Kippur and so on, and he don'ts. Do not steal, do not kill, do not eat treif. There are 248 mitzvahs, positive ones, do's, and 365 negative ones, totaling 613. This is what the Torah is composed of. Every Jew or every person also is composed of 613 parts, exactly 248 organs of the body and 365 basic tendons, arteries. To show the arteries, of course, are the, where the blood courses through, corresponding to the negative laws. Negative means where a person is filled with desire, an evil type of desire, and he must overcome this, not to allow his blood to run too hot. So we see that a person himself corresponds very much to the Torah. A person is the Torah, and therefore a person can learn a lesson from the Torah. What we are taught here about these kings, about the Jewish people in general, in this amazing series of generations in history, is that this whole Torah deals with one single Jew. Every single Jew, every one of us, and every Jew has lived in the past too, can find himself in this history. This is the history of each Jew. For example, Every Jew goes through a lot of changes in life, known as the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs. A Jew has alias and Uridus. Some days he rises upward and <coughs> finds himself with thoughts of purity, of holiness, of good, warm feeling closest to Hashem. But some days he finds himself very much dejected, very slow, very lackadaisical, very reluctant to do mitzvahs, to study Torah, is drawn away from, is repelled from the Torah itself, from Hashem. And these ups and downs that a Jew enjoys or suffers has its counterpart in the Torah. The Torah teaches us that when a Jew rises up, he does mitzvahs, he becomes pure, like on Yom Kippur, for example, it is like the coronation of a king. He has become a king once more. He's close to Hashem. He's considered the most important person of all the Jewish people or the most important person in the world. And then, suddenly, after Yom Kippur is over, he begins to forget about his duties to Hashem. He goes back to his old ways, goes back to business, goes back to his old desires, and plunges into the evil ways of life. And then he descends, goes down to Yerida, and he is... Hashem wiped out. He's assassinated. But he is not dead. Because there's always a chance for a rejuvenation, a revival, with a bit of tshuva, of repentance, a desire to return to Hashem, there is a new king crowned. That's the same Jew who comes back to life. He's given a new chance, a new lease. And so he continues on. Sometimes he remains good for a long period. As we say, he reigned for 41 years which means a long time he was good and pure, he remained loyal to the mitzvahs of the Torah, but then eventually he weakened. He fell, he dropped, he lost out. But because he has that spark of a Jew in his heart, he is awakened, reawakened, because he hears a word. He happens to come at the shul. He hears a word about Torah, about mitzvahs. He feels remorse, regret. He wants to come back. And again, he's brought back. What is the strongest 
method in awakening a person who is spiritually dead or who seems to be dead. Vedanal says that the best method used, a method we can call Tchiyas Hamesim, to bring a dead person back to life, is through Hispedidus. Hispedidus means that a person is given the privilege, no matter who you are, no matter how bad you are or how bad you think you are, you may not enter into discussion with a great person or with a good person or one who is disgusted with you, ones who have de- rejected you completely. You try to see a doctor, for example, for an illness, the doctor says, make an appointment for three weeks from now. The big surgeon says, save the operation until six months. Control yourself. I have no appointment for you. You must live six months until I'm ready for you. Or if you want to see an important politician, a mayor, he says, wait until four years later. If I'm elected again, you'll see me then. The governor is still further and so on. You want to see the president, well, you have to travel to California or something. You get to see him after he's, he's able to <laughs> mentally uh, meet anybody. But there's one case, though, not the mayor or the president or a doctor, but one who rules over all these, one who has created all these. Kaviachal Hashem. Hashem has created the entire world, who rules over all the world, and who is infinite in greatness, if you want to see Hashem, meaning to have a personal interview, personal meeting, where you can speak at length without any restricted time, you can without any appointment whatsoever. Anytime you're ready, the door of that heavenly office is open for you to enter into it. At any given moment, the minute you start speaking, the ears of Hashem are attentive. Immediately, Hashem is listening to what you say. And there's no reprimand either. You come to Hashem and say, Hashem, I was a king, I was treated royally, I was given my food, my livelihood, my sustenance, my health by you. I rebelled against you, I was very undeserving, very disloyal. Now, I'm sorry, I want you to take me back. There's no hesitation. Hashem says, you're welcome back in my good graces. As long as henceforth you remain loyal, we'll have the entire past erased, completely forgotten. Forget about the past, the drops, the idol worship, and so on. You're a new king now, and from now on you'll reign supreme, if you obey the mitzvahs from now on. The Jews are very fortunate. Look at the, the privilege I'm given. Look at the infinite kindness that Hashem has. No person would ever be that forgiving. So the Jew feels he's gone through this period of state of remorse, of repentance. He feels a load taken off him, that burden of sins he had. He's very happy to come back to Hashem. A short period goes by, and a Satan, Satan, the Yitzhahara, evil inclination, presents a test for him. His old friends beckoned him to come back. They have certain prizes for him, temptations. And try as hard as he could, he tries to resist them, but he finally yields to these temptations. He goes back to his evil ways, and after a while the sweetness of these temptations turns very sour, very bitter, because he knows he did wrong. And so he figures, how do I go back to Hashem now? 
when we ever get back to that private discussion with Hashem, he's notified again. You want to speak to Hashem instantaneously, you can. Right from where you are, don't climb back up the hill in mountains that you've fallen. Right where you are, turn and speak to Hashem. So he does that. He turns and says to Hashem, I promised I'd be good. I did not fulfill my promise. I ask that I be given a second chance. Because this time I'll really try. My word was not good enough. I committed many sins. But perhaps I can come back and start a new life from now on. Hashem says immediately, a new king is crowned. Another coronation. The old king was assassinated. He was wiped out because of his deeds. You, this Jew, is the new king reigning now. And this new king, instead of reigning for 41 years, for 10 years, he reigns for a month, which means for only about an hour. One hour's time, he keeps his promise, goes outside, gets involved with others, with whatever it is, it could be drugs even, he cannot contain himself, and he falls right back to where he was, only this time much worse, much further down. He says to himself now, I know I can go back to Hashem. I know about that rule, the door is open. But I'm ashamed. How can I face Hashem? How can I talk to Hashem? And Hashem knows that my word is worth nothing. At this point, Benadol says, you must know that this argument, this statement, how can I go back to Hashem? I'm ashamed. That's not the Jew talking. That is the Jew's worst enemy saying that within him. A Satan, the Yitzhahara, who leads a Jew to evil, will then do his utmost to make turn that Jew cold, to freeze him, not to allow him to go back. He's got the Jew in his clutches now, in his trap. He wants to keep that Jew from going back, so he turns him cold. For this, Rabbeinazar reveals that there is a Gan Eden in heaven, there's a paradise after a person passes away, it's also a Gehenna. Gehenna means H. And that H is known to be very hot. The fires of Gehenna. The fires of Gehenna are very hot, very fiery. They, they hurt naturally. But they are not the worst thing there. There's a second Gehenna. Not the Gehenna of fire, but the Gehenna of ice. A Jew is led into sin. Does not repent. He pays for it with the Gehenna of fire. But if after going into sin, he is then notified, remember, that as much as you can sin, try all you want, as hard as you can, do all the sins you can, to the best of your ability, you'll never match the kindness of Hashem. As much as you can sin, Hashem is still more kind, will take you back. But if at that time, you become cold, you turn away from Hashem because you're embarrassed, these false excuses, there's a Gehenna of ice that's worse than the Gehenna of fire. So never allow these excuses, I'm ashamed, I cannot turn back to Hashem. You committed a sin, you broke your word, you broke your promise to Hashem, you did it ten times, you did it a thousand times, a thousand and one times. A thousand and one is no number compared to Hashem's infinite mercy. You must, you still can, you're still welcome to come back to Hashem, to repent and to be welcomed by Hashem, just as though you never did anything wrong. In fact, the Gemara says, that Hashem Kaviyachal enjoys this. There is an enjoyment in the part of Hashem. It may be difficult to understand how. The Benazal says to illustrate this, we have the case of a mighty king. 
The king has everything. He has wealth, power. He has thousands of servants. He has peace. He has castles. What can he do to have more pleasure, more bliss, more enjoyment than he already has? He tries to find means of pleasing himself during his spare time. And so people are summoned to entertain the king. All the entertainment begins to grow stale. There's one type of entertainment that arouses the excitement, feeling a thrill for a king that's above all else. This was in the olden days. It might be called barbarous, might be called heartless, but yet it was something that was prevalent in the olden days, the olden times, and today we have it in a different form. In those days, the king's section of the palace grounds had a sort of a stadium built, stadium grounds. The center was an arena. And there the king would pit two mighty gladiators, one against the other. Two fighters, strongest type, and this would be the sport of the kings. The king and his entourage would watch the spectators as these two fighters fought a battle to the death. There's nothing more exciting, although it's an evil type of entertainment. Or, let us say, if you have two animals doing this, two any types of animals, but where it's a battle to the death between two living things, it's a matter of excitement. Something that would excite even a royal party. This is what a king feels is the thrill of a king's lifetime. A kaviyachal, elevating this to a heavenly stature. The pleasure that Hashem receives, kaviyachal, if we can use that term in reference to Hashem, pleasure Hashem has is not when a Jew lives a life of peace and serenity quietly as a tzaddik, without going outside to be tempted. He sits in his home quietly, studies Torah, davens, prays, gives charity, eats kosher, and lives his life that way, a peaceful life, never deviating one iota from life, and when he passes away, he was a tzaddik, never did anything wrong, fine. Very nice tzaddik, but extremely boring. Nothing exciting about him. What does Hashem enjoy? Hashem enjoys a Jew who fights for his ability to become tzaddik, elevate himself to that status. A Jew who goes out into the world and is tempted. And, and these temp- through these temptations, he is not always successful. This Jew goes out to fight the battle, and many times he loses. He falls, he drops, he is nearly slain. But with courage, he comes back, rises up again to fight back. These battles are as Hashem pits two one against the other. The Jewish heart, the Jewish soul, against the forces of Satan. Satan, which means the evil inclination, eats the horror. It's an angel that invades, permeates the Jewish heart. Within that heart, there's a battle. The heart of the Jew is the arena. The battle between these two, this is a battle of life and death. Spiritual life and death. The shema, the soul, is at stake. This is what Hashem wants. Jew falls, he's a victim of Hashem, as I understand. I gave you a very worthy adversary. I don't blame you if you fall a victim, if you have succumbed to these temptations. I don't want you to give up hope. That is the last thing. A Jew should never give up hope. Know that you can still find favor in the eyes of Hashem. You can return to the good graces of Hashem if you never freeze yourself. Never allow yourself to fall to an atzvus, <coughs> which means a dejected state of mind, where you figure all is gone. 
This is what can keep a Jew alive forever. And this is the lesson we learn from these tribes of Israel, the kings, the ruling powers, where they went through so many changes, transformations, eras, one after the other. It seems like they were all evil, yet they were all called Melech Yisrael. The word Yisrael is a very holy word. As the Gemara says, Yisrael, Afal Pisha Chota Yisrael. A Jew is called Yisrael and has Hashem's name in Kale at the end. A Jew who sins, a real sinner, a Russia, a wicked Jew, is not called a Goy. He is called a Yisrael Shechotah, a Jewish sinner, but he still carries the title of Jew. You've fallen, you've sinned, you are still a Jew, you are still the nation of Hashem. You still belong to Hashem, and you always will. You can never lose that identity. A Jew can never convert. It's impossible. If he converts, it's like taking a labeled pig and attaching it to a cow. Here you have a pig cow. It's still a cow no matter what you put on it. So no matter what kind of waters they sprinkle on this Jew, he may be wet, but he's a wet Jew. No time ever can a Jew convert or leave his religion, his right by birth. He is a Jew. If he has sinned, he should know he is still a Jew. He still belongs to Hashem. He's been bad, a bad child. But a bad child is never exiled forever. He's exiled for a while. He's expelled from the home. But if this child returns to his parents and apologizes, and shows a true regret for his past actions, Kerachim of Abonim, a father, a mother, parents will always take that child back if they see that he is sincere. And so in this case, to the ten lost tribes of Israel, they are lost, but their loss is a temporary one because these are the ten lost tribes of Israel. They are Jews, and we today could be part of those as a symbolically. We today, a Jew today who has left Hashem, who is not religious, is like part of those ten lost tribes. He should know that he can come back, he will come back, he will be taken back. It just takes effort, desire on his part. Above all, never should a Jew ever give up hope, because a golus, an exile, is temporary. Hashem promises that there is in heaven what is known as the bow and arrows of Hashem. This is called the vengeance of Hashem. If a person does evil, Hashem promises vengeance. Just as Hashem promises reward for mitzvahs, Hashem says no sin will go unpunished. The worst statement, the atheistic statement that a person can make would be to say, I'll commit sins and Hashem is so kind, we'll forgive them. Hashem is good. Be sinful, live a happy life of sin, and Hashem is good, we'll forgive. That is the words of an atheist. Because, well, it's kfira, because every single act is to be paid for. Just as we believe implicitly that a mitzvah is paid for by Hashem with reward, so too is a sin paid for with punishment. Every sin. Hashem says, these sins I pay for by shooting heavenly arrows at the person. An arrow could be a disease, has to show him, could be a sickness, could be a malignancy, it could be poverty, it could be any type of worries that strike at a person, any type of suffering. 
So Hashem says, I have a bow filled with arrows. And I, I use this bow and arrows to strike at the sinners. To you, to the Jews, Hashem says, if you'll be evil, I'm going to take this bow and arrows, and I'm going to shoot these arrows at you until the very last arrow. Every single arrow I have, Hashem says, will be used at you. The Zara Kodesh says, explains the Gemara, and says that this statement is one of the most gratifying, happy statements possible. Nothing can make us happier than that. Because this statement teaches us the love of Hashem. Hashem says, I'm going to take these arrows. These are poison arrows. <clears throat> I'm not going to shoot one or two or three. But every one of the arrows I have, I'm going to shoot at you. Until the last one, until all my arrows are used up. Lord says, this teaches Hashem says to us, my children, I'll give you the works. But really solid. But you should know that as much punishment as I have, as much poison as I have, as much suffering as I can give you, that will come to an end. I'm telling you now, my arrows will be used up to the last one. There is an end to this suffering. Or you will never be used up. You will be wiped out. You remain after all those arrows are used up. This is an assurance to you that Jews will always remain. The arrows of Hashem of vengeance is temporary, is limited, restricted. But the Jews are infinite and eternal just as Hashem. That's why the Zarya Kodesh says that the Jews should know there are three things that are actually one. We use three terms, but they all mean one. Hashem, Hashem is infinite. The Torah, which is the word of Hashem, any part of Hashem is just as infinite as Hashem himself. And third, the Jews, the people of Hashem. Just as Hashem is everlasting, so too are the Jews everlasting. That no matter what they do, no matter what the outcome is, eventually every Jew will become purified, will return to his origin as part of Hashem, will be infinite as Hashem. As we learned in the Gemara classes discussing the coming of Mashiach, and afterwards, the Tchiyas HaMesim, the dead will come back to life. All those who died will come back to life so that they'll then receive the just rewards for the mitzvahs, physically and spiritually. At that time, every person will live forever in the type of life as is really intended by Hashem. Not this very temporary type of life where there's so much suffering, so much heartache. That'll be the true eventual life. Because just as Hashem is infinite and everlasting, so to the Jews. We need that strength of faith, strong faith that is injected into us by these holy tzaddikim, tzaddik emes especially. If we attach ourselves strongly to these words of these tzaddikim, to the tzaddik emes, to the words of the Torah, we'll be assured of this infinite life, of this joyous result, this ultimate goal of ours, to see the end of the exile of the Jews, the downfall of all the enemies of the Jews, the coming of Moshiach at Kenu, rebuilding of the base Hamikdash, Binyan base Hamikdash, the Simcha Clodius, eternal joy for all Jews, and the head of the end of the main